Hello, everybody, and welcome to the long-awaited episode 73 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters, sporadically, it seems. My name's Rod Murray, and as many of you have noticed, it's been a while since our last episode. And while that's frustrating, it does come with an upside, and that is that there is lots and lots of stuff that matters that we need to talk about. The we in this week's episode includes my regular co-hosts, as well as the always welcome and always insightful 2006 US Open champion, Jeff Ogilvy. Before we hear from the only major winner on this call, let me reintroduce you to my co-hosts, starting with blogger, critic, author, one half of the popular Shack House podcast among many hats is Jeff Shackleford from the US Shack. This feels a bit like that scene from the Blues Brothers when Jake and Elwood decide to get the band back <laughs> together. Now, are we on a mission from God, do you think? We're on a mission from God. <laughs> Absolutely. Good to hear from you. Good to uh, chat to you too. From here in the Southern Hemisphere, columnist, critic, course architect, partner in the design firm Ogilvy Clayton, Cocking and Mead, its former touring professional, and most importantly, thinker and commentator on the game, Mike Clayton. Clayton, it's always great to catch up with Jeff, o- Jeff Ogley, and there is lots to talk about today. Thank you, Rod. There is a bit to talk about, yeah. yeah which is uh, all going to be interesting. Finally, it's a great pleasure always to talk to one of the game's elite players, but particularly when they are as thoughtful and eloquent as Jeff Ogilvy. Jo- Jeff joins us today from the US, where I imagine he is slowly waking from the deep slumber of the PGA Tour's week-long off-season. Jeff, really appreciate it as always. Looking forward to getting your thoughts on a range of topics today, including the length of the PGA Tour off-season, perhaps. Well, I'll uh, I'll see what I can do. It's good to be here. Yeah, and good to uh, have you on. Let's start with the elephant in the room, the President's Cup, Jeff. Uh, you were an assistant to Captain Nick Price, obviously, at Liberty National. Before I get some thoughts on that experience personally and what that was all like, a few thoughts on what unfolded in New York. Obviously, plenty of us have had our say from outside. Uh, how did that week look from the inside? Um, well, I mean, well, firstly, it was pretty disappointing to get annihilated. <laughs> um Everyone was pretty hopeful. I and mean, the team, I wasn't involved in South Korea, but uh, the boys were pretty pumped when they left South Korea. I mean, they got really within a point. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, everyone kind of had the feeling that we'd bridged the gap a little bit. Um, I don't think everybody necessarily expected to definitely win it, but I feel like everyone was feeling like it was going to be a similar kind of competition, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um but it turned out it was pretty much over on Friday. I mean, it actually could have been over on Saturday. Um, could have been over before the singles, which would have been crazy. But um, So it was kind of strange because everyone felt really good and everyone was uh, feeling really good about it. But it was very evident within about an hour of play that our guys were out of form and their guys were in form. I mean, um, I mean, we had Adam had just had a baby and he hadn't really been playing much. Hideki had played like 400 weeks in a row and he was still feeling kind of overwhelmed with kind of the pressure he was carrying to try to win that PGA and he was kind of a bit beaten down by that. And Jason's always a bit kind of hit and miss. You know, when he hits, he's the best player in the world. When he misses, you know, if you don't get your Jason Day playing like him and your Adam Scott and your Hideki Matsuyama playing like they can, I mean... And they have they have Patrick and Jordan and Justin Thomas and those guys playing like that. You just you're just not going to compete with the, the the difference in form. Not really in starting ability. I think in form, and that was pretty obvious straight away. So, so that was a shame, but it was still a great fun week. Mm. I suppose broadly, the winning and losing doesn't matter so much, does it, Jeff? It needs to be a contest, doesn't it? That's the important thing for the Presidents Cup. South Korea was fantastic because both teams felt like they had the chance to win. That's what it needs to be each time, doesn't it, to really be the success. And oh, it's never going to be the Ryder Cup, obviously, but to get that kind of interest level where you look forward to it every two years. 
Um, I disagree. I think it could be like the Ryder Cup at one point. Um, I mean, you got to remember the Ryder Cup was nothing for 50 years, really. Hmm. I mean, well, not nothing, but it, it meant a lot to the players, but it really didn't kind of move the needle outside of the golf world. But it's really since Seve came along and it became a contest, as you said, um, it became the event it is, and we had a bit of animosity on both sides and finger-pointing and a bit of nastiness, and it's turned into such an incredible event. Mm. There's no reason that can't happen to the President's Cup because the the names involved are always going to be important. I mean, the rest of the world golfers, I mean, Jason Day, Matsuyama, Adam Scott, Louis Towson, Brandon Grace, I mean, they're relevant names in the world golf, you know, and, and they're followers of the next generation. They're always going to be important, so it's, it, it's going to be... A big tournament. Um, hopefully, it gets there quicker than fifty years. You know, we as you say, we, we desperately needs a few close finishes and uh, just to kind of create that excitement for the next time. You know, that's kind of what the Ryder Cup does. Everyone leaves the Ryder Cup and they can't wait till the next Ryder Cup. Yeah. Um, we all leave the Presidents Cup at the moment. And think, oh, what are we going to do to make this better? You know, it's kind of a different kind of mentality. It'll get there quite the responsibility for all those involved to, 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 to make that happen because of course all the spectators and the media go away for two years don't they and you guys are all left to try and work out how to make it. Leaving aside we'll, we'll chat about some of the specifics of what unfolded during the week but I just wanted to get your take on being what Shackelford unkindly calls a cart driver for the week. What was it like being an assistant captain and what's involved in that? He got stripped of his cart driving rod <laughs> before he could even... <laughs> I, he did have his name on the cart. Every time I saw you, you were on foot Jeff, what happened to the cart? Did you uh, dispense with that? <laughs> I hope he didn't like how I drove. He thought I was a bit of a dangerous driver. So uh, <laughs> I um I walked mostly, to be honest with you. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was kind of weird. Like at first, I didn't. Uh, I was pretty annoyed that I wasn't playing in it. I was happy that I was there. But as it unfolded and as I was doing it, I kind of I got to walk. I mean, I must have walked five or six rounds of golf at least, probably. Um, I got to walk with all the people who walk watching me play over the years, and it was interesting to see golf played from that perspective because I hadn't watched golf from that perspective for a really long time. Mm. Uh, so it was great. I had a really great time. I mean, kind of having the little radios, those little kind of things in your ears and like having having a little banter channel between me, Ernie Els, Nick Price, Tony Johnston, Mike Weir. I mean, that's a pretty cool little audio loop you're on on all day, like kind of it was it, it was great fun. It was just brilliant fun. Yeah. Safe for work. That banter channel. I wouldn't imagine so. You couldn't broadcast that publicly, could you? You'd find yourself in some trouble, I imagine, particularly when things aren't going well. Um, well, I think it's quite obvious it wasn't public because we <laughs> haven't found it yet. So, <laughs> great stuff, Shaq. I know that you had some specific questions about the format and the cup itself and some of the golf aspects of it, and particularly I think the four ball you wanted to bring up with Jeff and get his thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeff, what did uh, first of all? I, I mean, I I like the format, the 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 single uh, rounds each day, the first two days. Uh, but uh, I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on just kind of the overall uh, format. But then specifically, uh, I saw some some of the most beautiful power naps taking place during the four ball in the press center, and and I it led me to to wonder. Is four ball just a? It's it's just a really tough format to be interesting. I think in the modern era, with the way so many people hit the ball so well, it ends up a little bit of a putting contest, especially on a golf course that isn't really very strategic. Um, but but I, that's a leading question. Just kind of your thoughts on the overall thing and and maybe the four ball. That was more of a statement than a question. <laughs> it was a statement. It was a rhetorical question. Um. It's funny, 
it's strange that because the four ball is the funnest one to play in. You know, foursomes is like getting your teeth pulled out. Yeah, and everybody thinks the same thing. I mean, it's definitely the it's the the great players playing well love foursomes because it's a truth finder, right? I mean, you can't hide in foursomes. The best players will win. Period. Which is the way it is, and that's uh, intimidating to tee off. But the best ball is great because you've you've got a mulligan effectively on every shot all day, um, and it's quite fun. And you usually have to be well under par to win a match. You know, ten, eleven, twelve under par, and those things usually just to keep pace because there's two guys making lots of birdies. Um, so I'm interested. Uh, that's an interesting perspective because, from a player's perspective, and in the, and inside the ropes perspective, the best ball is maybe the most intriguing mm-hmm. um, because you see maybe the best golf because people play a bit loose. Yeah, you know, you play so tight in foursomes, um, and by the time you get to the singles, unfortunately, last week at least the tournament was over, so that there, there wasn't any appeal in singles. But um, the uh, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I would never have thought that. But it's interesting because that's a different perspective and I never would have thought. But uh, I don't know what you do. If, if I, I think it was the pacing more than anything. It's just it's just so sluggish after the foursomes, which moves so quickly. Well, that's fair. I mean, it's embarrassing how slow we play. And when it comes to best ball, it's, <laughs> it's, it's on a whole other level. So yeah. I don't understand why I'm not picking on these guys because I don't know if they do that or not. But let's say Jordan Spieth the best putter in the world, as soon as he plays best ball, he needs someone else to read his putts for him. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not necessarily, I don't know if he does it, but I mean, yeah. you know, the point, it's it's kind of bizarre. I don't get it. Yeah. It was an interesting well, dynamic, yeah. wasn't it? Him, him and Reed, that whole idea of trying to beat each other, Jeff Ogilvy. I thought that was a really interesting little nugget that kind of got a bit passed over, but wow, what a way to play the team game, try to beat each other. And in the process, we saw what they did as a team. Yeah, they're a great team. I mean, you get, they're they're going to be tough to beat for a long time yeah. if they can kind of keep that headspace they're in. Yeah, in fact, that US team might be tough to beat for a while. Clay, you've been far too quiet. What were your thoughts about the President's Cup, and what did you want to ask uh, Jeff Ogle to explain about what unfolded at Liberty National? Um, do we have any thoughts on expanding it to include the women, which was one thing that came out of it? Um, which I assume the answer is probably no, but I thought that was an interesting idea. Um, that might have been Karen Krause's idea, actually. Um, well, it was, it was actually Ali Whitaker's idea. She okay. started with it, but anyway. I don't mind. I think I don't think that's appropriate for the President's Cup, but I think that's a good idea to, to go forward. It's an event um, in itself, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think it'd be a great event. Good yeah. enough event on its own to be its own event. I mean, perhaps the internationals uh, could get involved in that in Ryder Cup years, maybe. You know, I don't know. Um it's an interesting idea. I think it would be cool. It'd be better to reinvent the Solheim Cup and because that's kind of a third great event now, isn't it? I mean, the European Tour is a joke. And, um, anyway, that's kind of women's golf, but which, which is interesting. I thought that concept of a women's and men's team event would be great, I thought. It's got merit, hasn't it, Clates? Although I, I, yeah. I agree with Jeff. I don't think you'd pull apart the President's Cup and make it that. But in addition to the President's Cup, that could be a very interesting sort of event on the calendar, uh, no doubt. And as as Jeff says, Jeff Ogilvy, what did you what do you think? We've always sort of, with the President's Cup, said that the US team is suffering fatigue. They have to play a team event every year. They've got the Ryder Cup, and then every other year they've got the President's Cup. It almost feels like they've turned that to an advantage, where the President's Cup is not a practice, but it's a great way 
to prepare for what they clearly feel is the more important of the two events, which is the Ryder Cup. They looked very into it, I thought, this year for a bunch of guys who should have been knackered after a long season in the Tour Championship the week before. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think what's happened, really, I think because uh, they had no competition forever in the Ryder Cup, right, basically, up to the mid-'80s, um, and they never needed to be good at team golf. They were just such a better team on paper and world-ranking-wise that they couldn't help but win every time. And then all of a sudden, Europe, Sebi came along and said, no, you guys are better than these guys. You can win this if you want. Um, and Europe got so good at the format that it all it made this team of like champions not good enough anymore. So the U.S. had to work it out, right? I mean, and they really have. I mean, they've turned themselves uh, into an incredible team, really starting with Azinger and then um, going on with all these Tuesday games they do with Phil. And um, they seem to have a really good thing going. And I think Europe forced the U.S. to get good at this type of game. And I think the internationals are paying the price for it at the moment. <laughs> Thanks, Europe. It feels like so we have to do what Europe did. We, we now have to work out all those little things that we're not doing that the U.S. are now doing that they've separated again. Because mm. you have to remember, like, the first few President's Cups, they were all close. All of them were close. And the, and the teams arguably were weaker. Our, the international team was arguably weaker back then than it is now. Um, the first couple were close. 98, we won. I can't remember what the, the one around turn of century happened, but 2003 was a tie. It was a good one in South Africa, obviously. Yeah, which, one, one of the year that was, yeah. It's a brilliant one, right? And and so really to that point, they were all kind of close and very competitive. It was only about kind of 05, 07 that it started going the other way. Um, and that happens to coincide with that kind of era or period where the U.S. started thinking, hang on a minute, this sucks losing the Ryder Cup. We better get better at this. You know, so I think like a bigger view over the whole thing, like everyone jumps to conclusions on last Sunday and says, ah, oh, we've got to change the format, this is stupid, this is not fair. I don't know. I think you've got to give the internationals a chance to adjust to this new reality of a U.S. team that's full of champions and is a champion team at the same time. I mean, um, we just have to get better. I think you just got to give us time to work it out. And the, the Europeans took a long time and they worked it out. And I don't see why we can't. We've just got to kind of work out the recipe and do it. That, that's the way I feel anyway. The talent's there, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, you can't look at the international team and say they're they're a bunch of chops. They're not. There are some really, really, really good, talented players in that team. That team is good enough to compete, isn't it? Oh, with no question. I mean, there's no – at least in the near future, it's going to be the US team's going to look stronger on paper every time. Um, but, I mean, we have two or three in the top ten in the world. They have two or three in the top ten in the world. It's really the bottom end of the team mm. that – where the difference comes in those kind of ranking things. And is there really a big difference between 25th and 50th in the world? I mean, is there, re- I mean, it's not, it's not as big a gap as one to 10, you know, not even close. Um, it's really just a matter of the form of the last six months, right? So in reality, the teams are pretty similar, always with a slight nod to the US team being better because it, it's just going to be, but it's not, it's not getting beaten by 10 points better. I don't think. No. Um, well, it's eighteen. You know, it's an eighteen-hole match play. I mean, mm. anyone could win an eighteen-hole match. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. And look, the team, some of those European teams that beat the US very convincingly, didn't look any better on paper than ours does. You know. I always so, thought the I always thought all through those Ryder Cup years, the US team always looked better on paper. 
even those great European teams, you looked at the US team and said, it's a great looking team on paper. Always. Yeah, it was always a conversation. How's Europe going to do it this time? I mean, they did it last time, but they're not going to do it this time. And every time they did, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been compelling. Anyway, that's for the, the way reason. I feel. I think I think we need to just get better at playing the game. Yeah. Last one on that before we move on to a couple of other issues. Adam Scott, I thought, had something very interesting to say uh, post his singles match, which was, "We need to get invested, not just three weeks or six months before, but for two years before. We, as the internationals, need to be more invested." What do you think he meant by that, Jeff? Was there any feeling, any sort of judgment on perhaps? It feels like the US are invested because they're playing one every year. That's what I mean by that seems to have turned around. It's gone from fatigue to they've turned that into a positive and they really play these things, as you've just said, as a champion team as well. Is that perhaps what Adam was getting at in some ways? I think so because what happens during these weeks is by Friday, Saturday, Sunday, everybody's starting to throw out, oh, we should do this next time. Let's do this next time. Next time, oh, we don't do this, we do this. And then, like, there are so many, there's so much good kind of positive, we're going to smash them next time kind of stuff going on um, that it's exciting. But sure enough, a week or two after the tournament, as we are here, like, all that excitement kind of goes away and we pick it back up again a month before the President's Cup in two years' time, you know. Um, I think Adam kind of meant let's continue this excitement we all have for this tournament this week and let's keep that excitement for two years. I mean, it's going to be difficult to keep it that high, but to just keep talking about it, like practice rounds together for two years, um, have a little text group going and just have a bit of bank going back and forth. Just little things to just stay in touch with the tournament. So much we just forget about it. Yeah. Which, to his credit, Adam has really done. As he really is invested in the Presidents Cup, and that's not just a public thing. He's really into it, isn't he? He wants to win badly. Uh, no oh, question. we all wanted to win so bad. I mean, he was great last week. He gave a couple of really kind of cool pep talks, and uh, it clearly means a lot. And uh, so he'll obviously be there next time. I would think at Royal Melbourne. Um, oh yeah, he wants to. He. I mean, he's played eight of these things and never won one. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> imagine being Adam Scott playing eight of anything and not winning at it. He, he wins at life. He, he's not used to not winning. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we come on to some of the positives from the thing, I'm not sure whether you read Audrey Leishman's blog about some of the crowd behaviour. Did you, Jeff? It obviously attracted a fair bit of attention. Did, if you did, what was your take on that? And how did you find it on the ground there, as wearing the uh, the opposition colours, so to speak, on US soil? You know what I mean. It was rough, but it wasn't as rough as I was expecting it to be, to be honest with you. Um, New York's pretty notorious uh, for vocal galleries um, or vocal people in general, really. It's not just sport. It's everywhere, right? I mean, they'll tell you how they feel. New York is pretty quick. Um, so from my from my vantage point where I was at all points last week, it wasn't as ridiculous as I thought it might be. Um, there was, a, I mean, there's always a couple of idiots and there was a few idiots there saying some pretty outlandish stuff, and I didn't hear any some of the bad stuff. But um, it would be nice to get rid of some of these guys who kind of laugh when people hit at the water and try to get guys to hit bad shots and stuff like that. But all in all, I didn't think it was as it, it wasn't quite as rowdy as I thought it could have got in New York. Okay, Jeff Shack, you were there. Did you hear much of what Audrey? I know you read Audrey's piece. Did you? Uh... Yeah, I, I heard. I heard a few idiots. Uh... Actually, quite a few, and they stood out to me probably because uh, the Walker Cup here was so tame and so civilized, and it was kind of refreshing, I'll be honest. I mean, I love the energy that you get with a home field advantage vibe, but 
it was also kind of fun to be in a team match where people applauded just they just applauded a good shot. They didn't care who who hit it, and a lot of it was the people just a lot of the people were there uh, really didn't know golf that well, and they were there as a social thing, and they saw a ball go close to the hole, and they they clapped, and it was very it was very civil and nice. So when I was at when I walked around Liberty and I heard some of those comments, uh, it 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 stood out to me more than normal. So I understood her. Uh, her her remarks and and uh, she felt embarrassed. I, I, as an American I, the only thing I wish, Jeff, I was saying, I wish I could have been there if somebody dared to say something to Julie. That would have been <laughs> that would have been entertainment. I would have enjoyed. <laughs> I, have to say, I doubt she'd point, back down. Yeah, the thing that frustrates me is you're always going to hear idiots. You can't get rid of idiots, right? I mean, right. they're <clears throat> but there was as you as you alluded to at the walk up. There was. I was walking around in close proximity with these golfers and there was a lot of really, really high quality shots hit by people that didn't even get one clap, you know, like four irons holding up into crosswinds to 12 feet, but because it wasn't American, not one clap, no appreciation. You can want the other guy to win, but still appreciate good stuff. You know, that, that really kind of, it rubs me the wrong way when it's, it's completely result-based and there's no appreciation for like the effort that the people are putting in. I mean, you don't have to like the person, but appreciate the effort they're putting in, you know? Yeah. The, easy, the easy thing to say there, Jeff Ogilvy, is that that's a peculiarly American thing and, you know, outside of America, people get on America. The yeah. ugly American fan. Is that true? You've played all over the world or, does, or is the sort of thing that happened last week, does it happen elsewhere as well? Oh, that stuff happens everywhere, yeah. I think. Um, I think... U.S. crowds are very uh, – it, it's like a virus that goes through the crowd in the U.S. It catches on a bit quicker. So if, if there's a pocket of crowd doing something, whether it's good or bad, the U.S. crowd seems to – everybody seems to do it straight away, more so than it would in Australia. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when something starts uh, going positive or negative, I think everybody jumps on board a bit more, which is what makes U.S. crowds so loud and so great to go to football and basketball. And the whole stadium is like doing that thing, right? Um, but that happens in golf. And so when there's a few people get a few laughs or something, saying something idiotic, then everybody thinks, oh, this is how I please the crowd. I'm going to say something idiotic. They're more playing to their friends in the crowd than they are anything else. Yeah. Um, and I think they just forget what they're, what they're actually watching. And they, they're more important getting their laughs from their friends and stuff. I don't think it's a... They're not bad people. It's just the crowd does it to them. You know, I think it's just the way it happens. Mob mentality, um, I think they call it, don't they? When the, the mob takes over and uh, that's what you get. That's what lights. it feels like. Like the USA chant catches on very quick, mm. you know. Three guys say it and all of a sudden the whole stand is doing it. You know, it's like it catches on a lot quicker than it does everywhere else, which is a cool thing to be part of, I'm sure, but it's tough to be on the receiving end of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's no different to our embarrassing Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi that you hear from time to time, is it, Clates, which is uh, just a... Well, that, that, that's about as bad or even worse. I think it might... Uh, you've played all over the world. Clates, how have you sort of found crowds? Are they different in different parts of the world or are golf fans oh, generally well, golf fans? No, I mean, I think Americans, not that I've played much there at all, but my observation of... I was at the Open at Beth Base in 2002, which was kind of New York and rowdy, but... You know, British fans and Australian fans are the same. They're, they're very similar. American sports fans are much different, mm. much louder, and feel like they're, it's a free forum to uh, offer an opinion when in Australia and Britain you would never hear things like that yeah. just because they're just different. But it does make a smaller event seem bigger over here. I mean, yeah, you can, probably. Yeah. 
you come down the last few holes at the Australian Open, and if you're not in the last group playing with Adam Scott, then it's it's really not that crazy and loud. But you, yeah. you down, you're coming down the seventeenth hole on Friday afternoon, trying to make the cut in like Greensboro, and it feels like a really big time deal, you know. So it's it's nice to play in front of loud people. I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd rather I'd rather do that than the other way around. Yeah, for sure. Positive. That's a rabbit hole we don't necessarily want to go down. Last thing from me on the President's Cup. Overall, obviously, it was a disappointing week or a disappointing result. What were some of the positives, Jeff? I thought there were some really interesting performances. Lahiri obviously stood out at the end of day three and then again in the singles. What were some of the positives you think you're taking when you look back? Um, that might be the making of him, I think, Anaban. He was clearly under the pump day one and two. He played some truly awful golf, but really stood up in the afternoon on the on day three and again in the singles. What were some of the things that you sort of will take from that when you look back in a few years and go, ah, oh, that was that was an important thing that happened there that day? With Lahiri? Oh, just generally speaking. I mean, for me, I thought Lahiri, but were there others? I mean, did you sort of see some things from your perspective that we maybe didn't from the outside that you sort of thought that's it's a positive? Yeah. It's funny because that afternoon I walked around because Pricey kind of, it was delegated a kind of spot for us to go, you know. He'll, he'll say, I'll go with whatever, Hideki and Siwoo and Jeff, you go with Anaban and this guy. And so my job that day was really to kind of look after Anaban and Siwoo, really, at least for the last kind of nine holes, I think, 10 holes, 12 holes. Um, and I, walking off about, they were about two down, and walking off 10th green, Anaban comes up to me and says, I can't coach this guy anymore. Stick right next to him all the way in and he'll play great. I don't know. I didn't really know what it meant, but I guess he'd been asking so many questions of Lahiri. Lahiri was paying too much attention to what Siwoo was doing and he wasn't playing his own game or whatever. And then for the last eight holes, I don't know, Shaq, if you watch much of this game, if you were out there much of this one, but Siwoo was walking in 20-footers and like just yeah, four Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just amazing, like just how confident all of a sudden from a guy who hadn't hit the map for the first day and a half, all of a sudden he looked like, wow, it was it was amazing to see. And he continued that on Sunday too, Siwoo. He played great against Daniel Berger, who was miles under par, and Siwoo pushed him to 17, and he was almost crying because he felt like he'd let the team down. Um, but you're right with Lahiri. Lahiri, he had uh, a fair bit to prove, well, at least in his own head he had a lot to prove this week because he kind of, the way it ended in Korea with him, kind of being the fall guy, if you like. But, it, I mean, the one guy who everyone focused on. So he, we wanted to play him as much as we could. He was a pretty unanimous pick amongst the assistant captains. I, I'm pretty sure Pricey was leaning towards him, but as soon as he called us all and said, who are you going to pick? Well, we said uh, Grillo and Lahiri was the unanimous. And everyone was kind of worried about that after a day or two because he was playing so crap. But, yeah, Saturday afternoon he played great with Siwoo, as I said, and Sunday he was – um pretty impressive in the singles. I wandered quite a lot, quite a few holes with him in the singles. He was great. Um, and as you say, it, it'll, it'll, things like that have a way of making a guy, you know, and I think both of those two that I mentioned, I walked a lot of holes with both of them last week. Siwoo, Kim and uh, Lahiri will both be better players because of that weekend. Yeah. I see Kim shushing the crowd when he went from three down to two down is one yeah, of the all-time great wild. moments in team match uh-huh. play, I reckon. <laughs> Uh, but that's what you need, isn't it? That's what makes guys competitive. That, you can't fake that. He's into it. And so that's fantastic for the international team going forward, isn't it? I suppose they're the things you don't sort of think about so much right after it's happened. But 
Yeah, Seawoo Kim will remember all of that that happened there. And when it comes around next time, or even hopefully over the next two years, that's important for the next one. Is that, and he's invested. And if the others are the same, then that that's what makes a team, isn't it? Really being into it. So I thought that was. Uh, that was uh, terrific stuff. I've finished with the President's Cup from my perspective. Clades, did you have anything left for uh, Jeff or should we move on to some other matters? No, just, I'm just thinking about crowds. The best crowds I ever saw were in Sweden, which is a strange place to pick. But it is. Swedish, Swedish crowds are always great. Colourful, lots of them. Kind of cross between noisy but sensible and... They used to clap in rhythm, remember? <laughs> yeah, like, they were great in Sweden. They were amazing. Stop clapping in time. Yeah. Like it was kind of odd. Yeah, it was cool. Sweden was great, yeah. yeah. So Sweden, yeah, they, they've really got golf since Sweden. They've got really terrific. They really, well, they do golf brilliantly. A whole other topic, but they do golf brilliantly from the ground level all the way up. Does anybody else wish it come? sometimes they were Scandinavian? It's just a fantastic part of the world, and they just seem to do everything so well uh, in that part of the world. Let's move on to some uh, some other topics. I wanted to, uh, well, Shaq, you can do this one. You've you've sort of been involved oh. in a bit of a Twitter Twitter debate with uh, Justin Thomas, leaving aside Justin Thomas and any specifics from the tournament just gone. The ball being left down near the hole. You've been on about this and Clates for a very long time. Uh, it all sort of blew up at the weekend, didn't it? Well, there was another high, high profile example. So yeah, that that when somebody uh, plays a shot and they claim they don't remember the shot before them being hit. Um, and it and it makes him. It ends up that he he makes a lot more money because of that one stroke that hitting the ball saved him. It definitely, I think, was a case where people who were skeptical saw what uh, could happen if if this is the case. And so it was a more blatant example. There've been there've been several blatant examples of of late on on weekends and down the stretch. And so more people are are noticing it. Um, and it's. I think that people are also realizing more people are even even the ones who acknowledged it weren't understanding the ramifications and now when they they sense that that the competition has some sort of element that's that's not 100% uh, 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 on the up and up they realize the threat it, it it poses to the integrity of the sport and the image of golf and that's kind of what Clates and I, I think have been railing on about for a while now it's we're, we we're all for faster play and different things but when you step back and think about what this could do if this turned into some sort of little scandal or there was a, a major championship was decided by this um it's it's it, it could be very ugly and a lot of people pay a lot of money to be a part of golf because it's seen as pretty clean and pure so that's sort of uh, my my general take um, I know Jeff's just thrilled we're bringing this up uh, <laughs> no, as a player. Not to make um, things awkward, Jeff Ogilvy, but um, it has become a bit of a talking point. More broadly, do players talk about this stuff amongst themselves? And have you seen anything in this last week? Or did you take anything out of it? Did you see any of that debate? I'm not trying to make life difficult for you, but it's, a, it's not an insignificant issue necessarily for golf, is it? This ball being left near the hole while somebody else is playing, which technically shouldn't really happen. Well, it's significant while you guys are always talking about it. Um, uh, spoken like a player. <laughs> here's the thing. This is from my years of golf. It didn't. I didn't notice it happening when I first got on tour. Um, it's gradually started happening more and more to the point where I would say there's a few etiquettes in golf that are exclusive to tour golf. 
pro golf, like through lines. Played snow yeah. through mm-hmm. lines. Yeah. One's a weird one, right? And, and no one who hasn't played <laughs> professional golf has heard of about a through line, but there is not one professional golfer in the world that's played more than one tournament that will stand on the continuation of someone's line past the hole. They'll never do it. You just don't so who's, do who started that? I mean, Norman started it here. I, I mean, no one had ever heard of That's what's Greg so weird, Clay's uh, about these. Who, where do these things start? <laughs> but I'm putting this thing that's happening now with people leaving the ball. It's the same thing. It's seen as, you know what, everyone, no one gets it, but we're pros. This is just what we do. It, it's, it's, an, it's become an etiquette of the game. But I have to say, everyone is very cognizant. And if it's, if it's a situation that's <laughs> – all situations are serious, so I'm not trying to undermine the first hole to the last hole, but no one's doing it in a major. There's no way. I don't know well, who would do that. In a, there's just uh, no – um, Jeff, on the 55th hole of the US Open this year, Brian Harmon chipped his ball to a foot from the hole. Justin Thomas is over the back of the green – and Harmon leaves his ball there, and Justin Thomas chips his ball there in the last group of the US Open. Well, that is not that's, that's not a joke. I, I, I mean, that, and I don't think that's not the way I see uh, the etiquette. I see it as, and I think I was talking to you about it last week, Jeff. I mean, it's purely it come out of a pace of play thing. One guy's in one bunker on one side, right. one guy's in a bunker on the other. A guy hitches bunker shot up and just to kind of help the whole thing out because both caddies have to rake the bunkers and the balls and it's just going to slow the thing down. Just hit your bunker shot before the guy marks it. It's fine. You know, that's how it starts as a, this is going to save sure. two minutes. Um, and it's gone from a, and which is a very sensible thing to do really probably if the ball is not really in play and it's not one of those bunker shots that it's not like he's one of those fast bunker shots where the only way to stop it is hit the hole. If you put a ball next to it, well, now you've got another thing it can hit and stop, right? If, if some bunker shots, it's not going to matter as much, or chip shots, you know, but it's become one of those things. Out of one of those helpful little pace of play things, it's, become, it's obviously becoming an issue if it's this noticeable. So the two is going to have to put a policy in place, I would say, because it's become, an, it's become a thing where guys are scared to be the prick, so they just sure they offer to leave their ball there. Every player on tour, not every player, but most players will say, they won't say, should I leave it there? They'll say, would you like me to mark it? And almost every player on tour is like, no, 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 it'll be fine. And they'll hit yeah. their shot. That's kind of how it's come out of innocent beginnings, but it's become what it is. Yeah, yeah, no, these things always start in some weird little way. There was that picture you said, Shaq, with uh, Dustin Johnson oh, chipping. Spieth, yeah. Jordan Spieth ball by the hole and Jordan practicing his putting in the rough on the side of the green. <laughs> well, that, that was clearly, yeah. well, that was like laughable, that one. That was laughable. He was no more than 20, 25 feet from the hole. Yeah. Yeah. Do players talk about it, Jeff, amongst themselves? Is this something you might chat to Adam Scott about? or Not to use specific names, but is it the sort of thing that you guys sort of talk about and go, you know what? I think Mickelson alluded to this with the ball marking, didn't he, when the Lexi Thompson thing happened. It's the sort of thing that players will take care of this behind the scenes in a way. Is it one of those kinds of issues, perhaps? Um, well, I think if they had told us to stop doing it, I think we would just stop doing it. Yeah. Um, as I said, it's just kind of evolving into what it is. It's not like anyone decided, hey, we could all help each other out. I don't think it's it's not that intent. It's become that intent, but it didn't begin that way. Yeah. Um, I they just if they tell us to stop doing it we'll stop doing it I think yeah. I, I don't think it's uh, it's pretty easy I mean 
just go mark your ball, please. Unless it's absolutely impossible to do, you know, go mark your ball. Yeah. And it's pretty – And you know, you, you've hit a shot from the other side of a water hazard and you have a 150-yard walk or something. Well, then get someone else sure, to go mark sure. the ball. You know what I mean? Like, um, But I, I don't I, – I have yet to see anything like that affect a tournament, but – you would hate to see it do it. So, yeah, I think we could just get rid of it. Certainly one of those things that appears to be having a bad look about it, and that alone should be enough for the tour. The tour is very, very cognizant about its look, aren't they? And so I think uh, that might lead to something. Let's just move on from that a bit because there's not a lot of value in continuing down that path. We'll see what unfolds. It Scoring at St Andrews over the weekend. I'm going to start with you, Clates. Uh, particularly on, well, scoring at St Andrews on Sunday at the old course. We saw a new course record from Ross Fisher. Dubuisson had a chance at 59 for quite a while there until he made a bogey at 16. What was your knee-jerk reaction to what happened at the old course? Lots of them um, talk about it, obviously, on the net and on Twitter. I'm not sure how they set that course up because it's a prime, so not the last day, but the other three days. So I'm sure it's not as difficult as it might be in the Open Championship. But, I mean, Curtis Strange shot 62 there, what, 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. In the Dunhill Cup, so that course is vulnerable. It's short. It's a short golf course. When there's no wind, it's not particularly difficult. Um, but it's just a commentary on. I mean, it wasn't so much the sixty. It was how many rounds there were, sixty-eight or better. I mean, basically everyone shot sixty-eight. Sixty-eight was par. Eight players at par or worse out of the entire yeah. sixty-eight man field. Eight yeah. players. At par. So, so it, you know, it goes to the the forever question of what the equipment's doing to the game. You know, it's making it easier to play, and inevitably they're going to start. Well, they'll they'll, they'll continue to shoot crazy low scores on courses that were set up for to be played with different equipment. Mm. So it's the, the, the danger. So at some point, yeah, you know, at some point, I mean, everyone was staggered at John Daly how far he hit the ball in nineteen ninety one. Now everyone hits the ball as far as John Daly, and everyone's staggered at Kepka or Johnson or. In 30 years, the tour will be full of Kepkas and Johnsons and every course will be irrelevant. So at some point, something's going to happen, I think. With, with an eye to the future, it's a little bit scary. I suppose the danger, Shaq, is that we look like a bunch of grumpy old men when something like this happens. That takes away from what was an amazing round of golf from <laughs> Ross Fisher and Dupuis. Yeah. The play was fantastic, equipment or no. It was phenomenal golf. <laughs> yeah, that's why I hate these discussions after a course record. Mm. I only welcome them because uh, those who are just sort of watching from afar – uh, it gets their attention when you see a Carnoustie and a St. Andrews uh, and scoring things get their attention. But I think we all know it's almost surprising that somebody hasn't shot that score on the old course, given what an incredible condition it's in these days and how good the guys are. And, and I mean, I thought the round was amazing just because it was, uh, it was so slow. I, I couldn't believe how long it took to play those last few holes, but, you, you do hate to, to have the discussion so soon after. On the other hand, it is kind of an opening. And I've noticed, I don't know what you guys have noticed, uh, but I'm just amazed how often now the distance topic comes up and I get to just sit back and, and listen and, and laugh. <laughs> and I don't have to be the one driving it. It's People are just, oh, this is ridiculous. I've had enough. Uh, I mean, even, you know, the Walker Cup at L.A., we added new tees for the 2023 U.S. Open. And a few of those those tees were already perfectly relevant even though they were added thinking of six years down the road uh, a couple of them were already made to look a little bit um, well just just right right now and when you see that it, and and people the average fancies that it's like okay this is I think that's what's fascinating is there's been a, a 
I never get the yes, but it'll grow the game if and don't if we can hit it longer. I don't get that ever anymore, which I think is fascinating. I was reading your book last night, Jack, the future of golf, when there were thirty-five million tennis players in America in nineteen seventy-five with a wooden oh head gosh. racket, and then there were thirteen million. Yeah, you know, and there were oh, thirty million. Got to be even players. less now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the argument that making the game easier increases participation clearly isn't happening. It was not just demonstrably false in tennis's case and arguably false in golf's as well. The appeal well, of golf's always been its difficulty, hasn't it? Jeff Ogilvy, I imagine for you, like all golfers, anybody becomes as good at the game as you have. You're driven by that notion of it's just such a challenge, aren't you? That's what makes you keep wanting to play and get better and better, isn't it? Is that it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, to be to be truly honest, I mean, the challenges of the game don't really change what you're using. Mm. Um it's a hard game, doesn't matter whether you're using a stick with a rock stuck to the end of it or a brand new Titleist driver. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a hard game, right? I mean, the, the, the conversation isn't about making golf better or worse. It's just being, making the golf courses more relevant. Um, yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with the game because the game's appeal is cool, whichever, whatever clubs you use, you know, and people can go use whatever clubs they want. They don't have to buy the new ones if they don't want to, you know, um, you can go to eBay, you can buy a set of persimmons for about five bucks, oh, no. you know, and they're perfect. Sad. Um, <laughs> but saying that, like, it, it, it's the golf courses. I mean, these are like proper, they should be like national trusts and um, protected areas. Like, you, I mean, these are parts of history that are special. I mean, you keep the good parts, you know, and these are the good parts. Um, that's the shame to me. I mean, St. Andrews, are you kidding me? There's no other sport with that. I mean, there's almost no other anything in the world with that. I mean, that's like the Vatican for Catholics. I mean, it's the beginning of it all. Like, if that if that's made to be irrelevant, I mean, what are we doing? Like, that's yes. all I have to say. No, <laughs> and that's what you keep hearing is uh, more people are comfortable with bifurcation too. It's like, well, yeah, let me keep that, and it won't kill those guys to 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 play that uh, a different ball. And I mean, I've even had people start to say, you know, I think it'll actually be kind of interesting. When they maybe they use the normal ball at Aaron Hills, but they when they go to Marion, they play the the classic course ball or whatever, and they'll have to adjust, and it'll be just like going to altitude, but it won't it won't be a big deal. It'll be an interesting component and all that, and uh, yeah. it's just it's just fascinating how the attitude has has gone from resistance and digging in immediately when the topic comes up to I'm just sitting back and and listening and and people coming to the realization. Aaron Hills was kind of a breakthrough, wasn't it? It may have been the one. Yeah. Yeah. Eight thousand yards was and kept hit nothing more than seven on one day. I mean, yeah. that was kind of a. I mean, well, that shot. Shit. How about the just the Justin Thomas shot on Saturday on the last hole? No, I mean, it's such side. a great shot. Not to take yeah. away from no. it again, but <laughs> the, pair, the pair of them actually they were two amazing shots, but the yeah, second yeah, one was just yeah. and it was six eighty-seven. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> some pretty stunning uh, stuff. I thought Rod that. Tommy Fleetwood, 63 at Carnoustie, was maybe. arguably that's a better round. Maybe more 60, impressive, I agree, yeah. Now, 61. It's, I mean, Carnoustie's way more than a two harder shot course than St. Andrews is. Yeah, indeed. And it wasn't easy necessarily that day either. I think there was a lot of pretty pretty high scores at Carnoustie uh, on that day. Did you watch any of it, Clates? Did, were you watching any of that last day? No. Okay. I didn't watch any of it. I, I was. Yeah. Mark James on the commentary, and this is not to single him out, there is a a school of thinking that goes this way. Mark James on the commentary said quite flippantly, but seriously, 
I think it's about time they need to put in some more bunkers and toughen this place up a bit. Oh. Yeah, okay. I mean, this is a complete point, Mesa. That's another one I rarely ever hear anymore. Mm. Uh, change the course for the equipment. You, yeah, again, that was one people used to always say. You still get the occasional grow the rough kind of thing, but... Well, we've um, done that, haven't we, Shaq? I think that, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what, that, that was the go-to position, and I think people sort of said that doesn't work. Is anybody else in agreement with me? And I know that we've all said at various times, the USGA and the RNA, it's their job to police these things and make these, set these limits, et cetera. I wonder whether the reality is, I mean, and it's always been our belief that they're afraid of the potential legal action from manufacturers if this should happen. If that groundswell you're talking about, Jeff Shackelford, exists amongst golfers, is it not time to bypass, as a group, putting pressure on the the ruling bodies and go straight to the manufacturers and and if people start telling them the people who buy the product we want the product to change won't that be more effective than hoping the usga and the rna can achieve Uh, something i I just sense the manufacturers don't want to be the first to to make something that goes less uh less distance they just haven't it's not in their dna as companies to do that uh i think there were there are most who will comply if if a ball is demanded or a spec is made, but I don't think they want to be the one to set the set the mark. Um, and so there's also uh, there are there are many patent issues that uh, will come up. That one company in particular I think holds a lot of patents on on this with the hope of <clears throat> perhaps slowing down any. Uh, 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 what would be the word? Uh, uh, the implementation of of a of a rolled back ball. So we'll have to see. I don't know if that's the case or not. But I, I there are a lot of patents that have been acquired uh, for that purpose. So it, it, I think it will be uh, it will be. But I think it, it, it's one of those we've always known. It, it's really got to come from the classic courses, uh, just like soft spikes, where they mandated that at at great golf courses. And if you want to play. Riviera, and you want to play Pine Valley, you have to wear soft spikes, and look how quickly those moved into the game. And it's amazing the influence those places have. Here's a left field question that you've just reminded Jeff Ogilvy, there are still some players on tour who wear steel spikes. Where do they get them? Oh, they still make them for us. <laughs> you can't walk into Drummond and buy a set of steel pike spikes, can you? I don't think you can. They must only we... make them for tour players. I don't think they make many of them, no. no. I think it's, it's – I mean, there, there's a few. There's a few hangers-on, but um, – Not many. It's dropping It's dropping every year because so many of these shoes now – A lot of, I mean, FootJoy's best shoe now is and doesn't even have things to screw in. It, like, comes with its own molded sole, you know, yeah. um, and that's becoming more and more – I think they're gradually going to disappear. Yeah, I would think so too. But it's always just interesting. Every now and then you see a tool player with spikes. Clates, do you still wear the steels? Where would you get a set of spikes if you wanted them? You can't buy them. Wouldn't have a clue. Sure. Have, I, I haven't worn spikes for – 20 years, probably. Yeah. 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 I missed the sound. Speaking of patents, yeah. speaking of patents, what what does everyone make of the PXG TaylorMade spat? Oh. Does anyone have an opinion on that one? I haven't seen. Well, I just I don't understand why it's one of those cases where why would you sue and and alert people to hey they're making a product that's very similar to ours only it's a, a whole price. lot less and by <laughs> the way it's from a very reputable company. Uh, I, it just seemed to me like why would you bring attention? It just would probably sell more clubs than anything else they're very odd classic disruptor though aren't they pxg but that, Jeff? yeah that's, that's their business model that's their attitude yeah that's their brand so they i think they enjoy that part of it i think though that you can take that a little bit far sometimes but um but for now that's what they're going to do yeah. I saw how it. are pxg doing over there i mean i've never seen a set in australia but um how are they doing in america <clears throat> 
They seem to be doing pretty well, Jeff. You would, I'm sure you see a lot of them down in your area because they're based there. But uh, you see them in bags more and more, and they're they're branching out and trying to get younger golfers and college teams, which I think is fascinating given the price point. Yeah, you see them everywhere. I think they're doing pretty well, actually. Jeff says, I mean, I live in the city and I play golf with rich guys who all know Bob Parsons. So, I mean, (laughs) it's his market. They have to have them. But um, I think uh, think they're going to be around for a while. You know, it might be like PXG might be like that. You know, Callaway kind of came out of nowhere in the 80s. I think PXG might be them. I think they've got the money to hang in there for a while and their technology seems pretty legit. Yeah. It's a very specific market that they've targeted, isn't it? and they've really found something there, I think, is the, the golfer who wants something better than the rack. i got a feeling they might do a bit of a Tesla thing here. They'll come out with – and they'll come, They'll end up coming out with a consumer model mm. that's below their top model yeah. eventually. That's what I would do if I was them, but they're not listening to me. So. <laughs> and, um, well, they should. What amazed me was that Nike were the greatest marketing company ever, and they had the best players in the world and couldn't sell a club, and this guy comes along – and he's, you know, it's, it's certainly the most aspirational set of clubs that you can get outside of a $100,000 set of gold-planted Hondas or something. But Doesn't, doesn't he you know, understand golf, though, because he's a committed golfer himself, Clayton, in a way that Nike never did? And it feels like well, lots, well, of people, clearly, but, lots of people from outside I mean, Nike, the game come in and think, you market tennis and the shoes and they're this way, and so this will work in golf too. And Nike is the preeminent example that it doesn't, aren't they? Well, they completely screwed up making golf clubs. I mean, I mean they should have been dominant in selling clubs given they had Michelle Wee and Tiger Woods and mm. everyone else who was great at the time. I mean, sure, I mean, how did they mess it up when this guy's seemingly nailed it in terms of making a set of clubs that everyone wants? Well, Nike didn't make good golf clubs. That was a problem, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, no, they clearly didn't make good clubs. Sorry. I mean, nothing against Nike. I mean, they made the same golf clubs that everyone else was making, but this guy, uh, he had conversations with people in the industry and said, if you wanted to make a club go further, could you? And they said, yeah. Legally? And he's like, yeah. And he asked why, and he said, well, there's budget cuts everywhere, and no one's willing to spend more than a dollar or two extra club, like, yeah. per, per yeah. unit. So he's like, well, screw that. And he headhunted all these people from Ping, mostly, mm-hmm. and said, build me the best club you can. I don't care how much it costs. And no one in the industry's ever done that. And he, that's why they're expensive, but it's also why they're very legitimate, very good, very quick. Because yeah. he actually got real club makers from ping to make basically unbudgeted pings, yeah. and uh, ping have always been a great club. And so he he did it really smart. If Nike had done that, they would have done well, I think. You know, but um, it it shows you how important technology is to people in golf and how and how uh, particular people are about their golf clubs. Because if you give them two yards on their five iron, they'll go spend 10,000 on a set of irons, you know, it's, it's amazing. But he, he, knew, he knew that was, I mean, golfers, that's what golfers are. That's yeah. the people I sell into those people. I think he's been quite smart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he, all of his marketing is exactly the right marketing. It's not like uh, some of the other stuff that uh, that we see from places. Yeah, I agree. It sounds like Whisper Rock might be a bit of a base there, uh, Jeff. There's a lot of PXG talk by the sound of it. You're intimately familiar with what's going on there, so that's good uh Good stuff. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something, Jeff. We were moving away from golf a little bit, and I, Shaq put up a little preview on his website, but it, the podcast isn't out yet. You did a really interesting podcast the week of the President's Cup with a guy who is really, really interesting, a guy called Neil deGrasse Tyson and a couple of others, which I think comes out this week. He's an astrophysicist. Uh, how'd you go chatting to him about golf? 
Oh, it was great fun. Um, Tuesday of the President's Cup, the tour decided to do like a media blitz because we're in New York. And so they had the Today Show. And the Today Show for the non-Americans here is, it's been on in America, what, Jeff, 30, 40, 50 years? It's been on forever, right? Yeah, yeah. I've grown up watching it. And yeah, and, it's, it's the morning show, yeah. In summer, they go outside in New York in this little spot and they do little stuff. And the President's Cup teams were the guests. Well, anyway, in attachment to that, they blitzed the media. So everyone, all the players, all the captains, everything got sent off to do all their interviews. And I guess the assistant captains, they say, oh, well, you go talk to the science people, you know, because it's not really promotional. Um, But it was great. He was brilliant. I mean, um, there was two other guys, kind of like comedian guys and him. And I guess they do podcasts on science. Yeah, sports and science, yeah. Sports and science and how it's advancing it. And obviously golf has probably been affected by science more than any sport by a long stretch, I would say, um, if you counted out car racing or something. Like, um, the science in golf is amazing, right? And they were kind of blown away and, like, 30 or 40 minutes went by really quick because we only just scratched the surface on, like, launch monitors. And he started describing uh, – I would describe TrackMan and, and he'll describe why Doppler worked and who invented Doppler and how it came to be and why it works on a golf ball and why dimples make the ball fly better in the air and um, – him not knowing anything about golf was explained dimples exactly as I've always been explained. And he explained Doppler. I'd never heard of it. It was great. It was brilliant. It was great fun. He is an intimidatingly intelligent human being. Is he not? What was it like just to sit and chat with him? He's a, he's a very personable sort of a bloke, but man, is there an engine under that hood? Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. It's like at some point I said something like, uh, so yeah, when the ball goes up in flight, the wind can hit it from the left to the right. And he's just, he just, didn't hit it. It affected it. Like just that school teacher kind of slapped me on the wrist for using the wrong word. It was, uh, yeah, as you say, he just exuded intelligence and knowledge. Like it'd be one of the most, if, if you had a dinner party table to fill up, if you dream dinner party, he would be at it for sure. He'd be fantastic. Extraordinarily engaging. I've seen him a couple of times with that Brian Cox, who's sort of the UK version of Neil deGrasse Tyson and just uh, fascinating, fascinating. You're very, you must have felt a bit lucky, I, I suspect, there, Jeff. Not everybody would have sort of got that and been into that, but you, I suspect, were the perfect candidate to go and sit with those guys and talk about that sort of stuff. I think, yeah, I was really excited. I mean, I didn't even know they were going to make the kind of assistance and stuff do stuff, but uh, I thought we'd be, like, holding the sandwiches and stuff. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh... <laughs> and were you? Was that and your you other were, job? weren't you? I mean... For most of the week, it was, yeah... Uh, <laughs> Don't go so heavy on the peanut butter next time, sort of stuff. <laughs> I know. I tell you what, I'm embarrassed to be a professional golfer because we are the biggest bunch of whiners and complainers in the world. You'd be it up there. Unlimited. You'd be up there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take it personally, but yeah. No, they're saying stuff to me exactly what I would have said to me, and it sounds <laughs> it sounds just like what are you complaining about? Just go play golf. It's funny. It's crazy. We're, we're, we're not right in the head golfers. On a serious note, is there something in that for you, Jeff? You, of course, uh, in very compelling fashion, kept your card at the back end of the season uh, with some really good play to get another year on the PGA Tour. Uh, you've clearly still got the game one on. Did you learn anything maybe with some of that sort of stuff over the President's Cup week that'll be useful to you for the next 12 months? I hope so. I think so. Um, it was a great perspective. As I said, just kind of it was almost watching myself that makes sense because all i've ever done at a golf tournament is play inside the ropes and and people always walk along and watch you know like people like jeff and clay's you know and you rod um mm-hmm. and 
seeing it from that perspective and seeing especially the mistakes they made in match play, like the decision mistakes and watching how body language is important in match play and stuff like that, it was, it's amazing to see what I do from a different perspective, but kind of in exactly the situation I do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, being right there on the tee, like when guys are here and just the body language stuff and the decisions and stuff in match play. And I wouldn't have done that. And I would have done that. And seeing how difficult golf is once I saw it from another perspective, it was interesting. Yeah. I thought it was great. So hopefully it'll, uh, I'm sure I felt like I learned something, whether it'll help me have lower scores or not. I don't know, but we'll see. Hopefully. What about your own sort of outlook for the year? You must've been stoked to have kept your card and did it in, Superb fashion, it has to be said. Um, what was that about? The, the Jeff Ogilvy that we sort of have known for sort of reappeared towards the end of the last year when the real pressure was on? Yeah, it was weird. Like, I was – stupidly, I'd been blasé about the whole exemption thing. I don't know why. Um, I, maybe it was self-preservation or something. I was didn't want to admit to myself how much it meant to me, you know. Um, but I realised pretty quick – how important it was to me on the first tee on Thursday, Greensboro. I was that's the first time I'd actually really thought about it on the golf course, and I was properly nervous, like not not winning a tournament nervous, like bad nervous, Q school nervous, you know, like root canal nervous, like <laughs> not because pleasant feeling. It's funny the periods in that tournament when I was like that, which was starting Thursday. Usually that happens, and Clates could back this up you usually before the round is the worst and the first hole and you kind of you make a nice little four foot of a par on the first and then you're away right and then and then you're just playing golf is what you do and the nerves kind of go away and they maybe come back on 18 if you're going to win the tournament or something or 17 or something um but q school nerves is like they don't go away really you know they kind of stay there because every shot could like kind of ruin it for you um but i started really well and they kind of went away and then i struggled and then i had a really good patch on friday just to make the cut um but and then on sunday i played great the front nine and they were they were the periods i was the most uncomfortable and the most nervous uh i wouldn't say nervous feeling the pressure they were the period they were the they were the periods in the golf tournament i played best by a long way so that was quite interesting that i almost needed it to be like that to kind of find it again because the one twenty fifth guy always misses. Someone always goes past him, isn't they? Really? I mean, you were one twenty fifth, but someone flukes it from somewhere that knocks knock you out, or it's bloody hard. It's the worst place to be is one twenty five. I think it is because you've already kind of mentally given it to yourself. You've got something. Yeah. One twenty six has nothing to lose, but one twenty five has everything to lose, right? Mm. Yeah. So pretty, and they all he always misses. They always miss. Generally, yeah. Historically, generally, yeah, it was fun. It was great. It was. I was. I'd, I'd never. I'd never been that worried while I was kind of because I was coming backwards, right? I was kind of up at inside the hundred, kind of in the middle of the summer, and I just. I, I. I didn't miss that many cuts. I made my cuts and stuff really, but I just. I would finish fiftieth, you know, and make no points and just go nowhere, drop back one or two spots every week. So I'm really, really worried about it because Greensboro is a tournament that I really like. It's one of the best courses we play, probably. Um, and I just kind of look forward to it, and it suits me. I just like it. But then when I got there, I realized that it was a pretty serious occasion. Um, it was fun. And now I'm, I'm excited about golf. I'm, I don't know what I'm uh, – I, I didn't play Safeway this week because the president's I, – I felt like I needed a bit more time off. Um, and I'm not going to go to Asia 
I'm not in the Asian tournament, so I'll probably play kind of two or three over here, like Vegas, Mexico, something like that, maybe before I come to the Australian Open, probably. So just feels good. Yeah. yeah, just the last thing, Jeff. It's interesting. You've almost come full circle in the way that you've been very comfortable in the world of golf for a very long time. You win a major, and that's as it should be, but. There's not been much pressure on Jeff over until probably the last couple of years, really, has there? And now, as you say, it's almost like being a rookie again, that whole process. So it's maybe relights the torch, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the things that we do this for so long, which is such an advantage relative to any other sport, really. Um, but it also, it can hurt you because I think you can get a bit complacent mm. a little bit without noticing because especially long-term exemptions, it's just... Uh, you often see guys, and I did the same thing, towards the end of their long-term exemption start kind of struggling because you, you, you haven't really had to do it. You know, you get to you get to the tour and you win stuff because in your own head, at least, you have to do it. Like it's a back-against-the-wall situation, Q-score. You have to get on tour, like top 125. You have to keep your card. But then all of a sudden, those things aren't there anymore. There's nothing you have to do anymore. You know, you've got a pile of money in the bank and you've got years on your exemptions and you're not, not trying anymore but it's not as desperate as it used to be. And I think sometimes it, it needs to be a little bit desperate. So um, It's not real, is it, Jeff? That world's not real, is it? <laughs> I guess that's the difference, isn't it? I mean, you're not living in a real world when you've got a 10-year exemption. And as you say, you know, financially, there's nothing week to week that has to be done. That's not a real world, is it? The rest of us live in a world where all of those things are a reality almost daily. It is in a real world. And look, it's an advantage. And I mean, as I said, this has a small disadvantage as you can potentially get complacent. But the advantage is greater in that you've got no pressure and, and when you're coming down the stretch like 10th and you bir- you've got a birdie the last to finish fifth that doesn't really mean much to you at that point so it's easy to do whereas the guy who hasn't had a top 10 for five years like he's desperate for it right and he's feeling completely different on the 18th seat that you are and, and when you've got all those long-term exemptions you just seem to birdie the last because it just doesn't matter you know and so it's a massive advantage but it's as it, yeah, it's, we do this for so long it's hard to keep that kind of youthful exuberance all the time but i gained it back a little bit this year at the end so hopefully uh yeah second wind hopefully it's always speaking of the australian open it's going back to melbourne yep i guess you saw that yesterday which would be nice i didn't see when's that uh 20 20 20 and 22 22 yeah both in oh great keep playing golf then (laughs) (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) goes in kex and heath in 20 i think but i'm not sure but Hasn't been announced, but you would assume that the two front runners are Kingston Heath and Royal Melbourne in whatever whatever order, and Royal Melbourne hosting the Presidents Cup twenty nineteen. Maybe they um, might not be so I'm keen. But be so sure about that one. But um, there's a rumour that Kingston Heath had a deal with Golf Australia that after they took the Women's Open at short notice in two thousand and eight, that they would get first dibs at the Australian Open. So. Um, we'll see how that one pays out, but yeah, be good to see. But anyway, two years in Melbourne, which is great. Yeah. That, that is great. It's exciting, isn't it, Jeff? Because it's kind of the spiritual home of golf. I know there's commercial decisions that go into this stuff, and that's why it's been in Sydney for so long. The Australian Open, but the Australian Open in Melbourne is feels kind of right, doesn't it, Jeff Ogilvy? Well, I mean, I would have always said yes, but I mean, it's it's kind of turn in Sydney has turned it from. I mean, look, it's always been a great tournament, but it is. Mm. So much better than it was ten years ago. It's not even close. Yeah, um, yeah, I, th- 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sydney's been great. I mean, people in Melbourne who don't go to Sydney don't realise how Sydney's actually turned it back into a really good tournament again. Mm. Yeah, it should be in Melbourne. You know, people in Melbourne think it should be in Melbourne, but Sydney's done a great job with it. That's true. Yeah. I think it shows the benefit of having, of potentially maybe going to the same city multiple years in a row. You know, because um, when we first went to Sydney, it was awful. Um, but now, the last four or five years, it's been incredible. I mean, it's been a better Australian Open than any of the ones that have played anywhere else. I mean, maybe they would have been better at Royal Melbourne because of the golf course or Kingston Heath or something like that. But as far as feeling like a big-time event, and I know the fields have helped that, but just the fact that it's been in Sydney has kind of created the scenario where you can get those fields because of the economic realities. And that's more important than anything else. But, yeah, it should rotate mostly through Melbourne and Sydney and then stretch out to other places every now and then. After all, it's the Australian Open, right? Mm. I think everyone's on board yeah. with that idea, but everyone understands these days, I think, don't they, Clades? The commercial realities just don't allow it. Not all facilities are up to necessarily hosting an event the size of the Australian Open, and that gets even bigger when you see the US. I mean, you were at Marion in 2013, no doubt, Jeff Ogilvy, and that was a venue not really ready to cope with an event of that size, wasn't it? You've got to be cognizant of those things, don't you? It's unbelievable they got that done there. Yeah. I mean, all the hospitality was in people's houses. Yeah, that's it's right. incredible. Yeah. Was it Mike? Zach Johnson, I think, was having his breakfast or something. One of the, one of the kids from that house that he was, yeah, in, yeah. was watching, <laughs> watching the cartoon yeah. channel, and the yeah. dog, the dog was there, sort of cadging oh, food off the table. So uh, weird. <laughs> some, uh, some really, but that is that is great news. And you get the feeling, Clates, don't you, that this rebirth of the Australian Open, they have done a magnificent job, Golf Australia, and to be congratulated on what they've done with the Australian Open. Perhaps this might be the launch pad to getting it to this, as Jeff was just telling, mostly Sydney and Melbourne, but then rotating to other parts of Australia because other parts of Australia deserve to see it, don't they? Well, I think it should. I mean, yeah, I mean Emirates are a big sponsor. They want to play in Sydney. Mm-hmm. The deal they did was an eight-year deal with two years out of Sydney. So in, in the next cycle, if they could do the same deal but go to Brisbane and Perth, I think that would be great too because, I think, yeah, I Ideally, the Open would go around the country, as it does in America and Britain. But it can carry itself for a one-off in Perth, can't it? I don't think it could survive in Perth every year, but it can certainly, it's got to a point where it can carry itself for a year in Perth and take the excitement with it. Um, yeah, one every 10 years in Perth and Brisbane would be, would be fine. Yeah. yeah it would be great. Yeah. I think the only way you do that, though, is if you have a solid couple of events around it that are always yeah. on the East yeah. Coast. The Australian Open basically playing on it. It's, it's its own tournament, and there's really nothing else going on. The Australian PGA being what it is, um, it needs a supporting cast because I mean Melbourne needs a golf tournament every year. You know, it really does. And perhaps you uh, create recreate the Masters into whatever it should be, and then maybe that bounces up and down opposite to what the Australian Open does. You know, like the Greg Norman kind of used to do. Um, I, you've got to have a tournament in Sydney or Melbourne every year. You just have to do it if you. It just has to happen. That's where all the people are, yeah. you know. Golf dies all yeah. down if you don't um, very, very, very quickly. So, yeah, interesting uh, interesting stuff. But it will be good to see it go back to Melbourne and, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm sure that'll get lots of support. I think I'm just about done with things that I wanted to talk about, although there are millions more that we could bring up. I never asked this, Jeff Ogilvie. Is there anything that I didn't bring up that you wanted to talk about? I never asked the guests yeah, that, yeah, and I should. Idea. I don't think so. <laughs> I, just, uh, I just enjoy back... Sitting back watching all your, um, all three of you guys uh, banter on the world's <laughs> golf positions. Well, we thought you hung up on us because you heard the pre-show banter there on Skype, and you and you just went, "Oh, <laughs> I want, guys, I want no part I of want this." No part of that. I man. have one other question for Jeff. Did yeah. you have any fun um, 
interaction stories with the uh, the presidents, any of the four, because that was really an amazing thing. Uh, um, getting the the three of them together there on Wednesday, and then obviously Donald Trump on uh, Sunday. Did you guys? Uh, was it just more of just kind of post for photos? And I mean, Julie got some great photos with uh, uh, President Obama. Yeah, it was great. The night before that first tea, or maybe it was Tuesday night. But it was a function. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it was Wednesday night. Yeah, like Statue of Liberty or something. Uh, the top of uh, Freedom Tower, One World. Oh, Trader. the Freedom Tower. Oh, okay, that was Tuesday. Okay. I think it was Tuesday. Yeah, and and so Bill, so forty two and forty three. Bill and GW came and did a little kind of off the cuff kind of speech, and really informal and stuff. And they were funny. I mean, GW is funny when it when he can just say whatever he wants. He's actually quite. It's quite funny to watch. And then Bill comes in with a diplomatic kind of over the top, and it was a brilliant spot. And it was fantastic. <laughs> and there was a, maybe there was 150 people in the room, so we got to chat with those two a little bit um, that night. And then the first tea, those three. And again, it's fun to see presidents or people in that position being so loose because they can, because they don't have any, I mean, they can do whatever they want anymore, right? If they decide to walk across the middle of the tea and go see all the wives or something, they just go do it, right? I mean, they just do whatever they want and everyone just yeah. gets out of there. And it's just fun to see them acting like that and they're like joking with each other and it's cool to see like the little fraternity three in a row and they're clearly all very close. Um, they clearly all talk to each other and uh, are very buddy-buddy. Uh, it's just fun to be in kind of around people like that when they're acting so kind of casually and normal. It was yeah, it was great. Yeah. yeah. What a, I'm just listening to that, Jeff. What a life golf has not given you, but what a life golf has allowed you access to. You know, a kid from humble old Melbourne, just, you know, swanning around with 42 and 43 and GW. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable stuff, isn't it? It's unbelievable. It's just uh, it's complete nonsense, really, when you think about it. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. It's... An unbelievable. I've had an unbelievable some unbelievable experiences. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's been great. Fantastic stuff. And, of course, you've come down to earth by chatting to us today, which we do appreciate. And we will now let you go because you've been more than generous with your time. As always, Jeff Ogilvy, great to chat and thanks for uh, your thoughts and input today. No worries. Yeah. And uh, no worries. Very Australian. Did you use no worries on the president? Someone, they would get that, I think. No worries. They would get it. No it's worries. Become it's, it's international. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's gone It's gone viral internationally. Absolutely. It's on the commercial, so it must be true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah what commercial? The Outback Restaurant. The Outback oh, Steak. well, there you go, yeah. There you go. If, if they it on that commercial, it must be true. Yeah, that's exactly right. Throw another shrimp on the barbie. Clayton, it's been great to uh, get your thoughts as well. Always good, always good to hear from you. We never hear enough from you. Uh, thanks, mate. And Jeff Shackelford, as always, terrific to chat to you, and I know that you're a busy man, and as always, we blame you for the lack of uh, podcasts between the last one and yeah, this one. Yeah, we need to so. start pumping them out here uh, in the uh, what is our uh, season. Uh, and one last thing, uh, I will post on my site, I briefly posted it thinking Jeff's pod with uh, the Star Talk guys was last week. I have the post ready to go. If they, they launch their pods on Wednesday at seven Eastern, so um, it's Star Talk playing with science. It's called. So hopefully it uh, it uh, goes live this week. Yeah. And uh, but I'll put it on my site, and then if people want to subscribe, it's Star Talk one word and playing with science. Um, uh, I'll get that link uh, as well. I'm really keen to listen to that, actually. Two, two really interesting yeah, yeah, lines yeah. from two different parts. It'll be fantastic to listen and to. And some it. of their past shows look 
look great too. Yeah. They have one on sleep and one on tennis and brain training and baseball, all sorts of interesting stuff. Yeah, so. fantastic. There's uh, the world of podcasts. As Clates has only just realised, you know, Jeff, we've been doing this for six years. Clates only just realised at the start of this year there were other podcasts about other stuff that you could listen to. He's just, now he's listening to podcasts all over the place. He's saying, oh, this is great, this is great. He's only six years before he realised. So, uh, well done, Clayton. It's the best. Especially, Uh, I mean, no good radio shows on ever anymore. Well, no, there isn't over here. So, they're brilliant podcasts. You're a listener, obviously, then, Jeff, and to different topics, I imagine. I mean, golf's a little bit limited. There's a certain amount out there, but the podcasts that you can get about politics and comedy and whatever you're interested in, there's something for everyone, isn't there? Yeah, I listen to quite a few, actually. There are... a lot of the TED Talk stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, great. Yeah. Really brilliant. So that time shift, you can take it to the range or you can listen. I'm a, I'm a big car listener. That's where podcasts live for me is they go in the car. I spend too much time in the car, so it's good to listen. Uh, enough about all that. Uh, great, to, uh, great to chat, everyone. Episode 74 coming. We're not sure when, but uh, hopefully soon. The band is now officially back together. Look forward to your company when we do episode 74 here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.